your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard for another hour of some uh, interesting, some frivolous, and hopefully entertaining science. Let me throw a question out at you. What momentous achievement of the last millennium involved the chemical reaction between nitrogen tetroxide and monomethyl hydrazine? So what momentous achievement involved the chemical reaction between nitrogen tetroxide and monomethyl hydrazine? You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. And uh, I've been uh, sitting here chatting with you uh, different times, but for the last 15 years or so on Sunday afternoons for about 40 years. And um, when I'm not doing that, I'm directing McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where our mandate is to separate sense from nonsense. Uh, We try to make sure that you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. We separate sense from nonsense and... uh, try to keep you out of the clutches of charlatans, and there are many, many of them uh, out there. I also like to pose some questions, as uh, as you just heard, and that will trigger some stimulating answers and a discussion. My background is chemistry, and uh, I think that chemistry is the basic science that ties all of the other sciences together, because uh, it is a science that deals with the study of matter and the changes that matter undergoes. And what is matter? Anything that has mass and occupies space, which basically is anything. So obviously, uh, chemistry allows us to talk about basically every aspect of our life. This morning, I did ask a question on the trivia show, and uh, it was a question about building disulfur bridges, building disulfur bridges. And we're not talking about uh, construction. We're talking about uh, cosmetics, believe it or not. So what on earth are we talking about when we're talking about disulfide bridges? <clears throat> you know that uh, women with uh, curly hair often pine for straight locks. And interestingly enough, women who have straight hair cover those corkscrew strands like little orphan Annie. Luckily, chemistry can fulfill these wishes, although there, there are some caveats that uh, we'll have to mention. But first, going to have a little bit discussion of what hair is. And I'll try to make this as, as clear as possible. Uh, it is not the ideal topic for a radio discussion because this kind of thing works much, much better with diagrams. But uh, let me give it a shot anyway. <clears throat> Hair is composed of a type of protein. It's called keratin. And this protein is formed within hair follicles. Well, what are they? There is little cavities in the skin, and they're surrounded by cells, and those cells provide the amino acids and the other components needed for protein formation. As I'm sure you know, uh, proteins are long chains of amino acids. Uh, picture pearls on a, on a strand. Uh, genetics dictates the specific fashion in which the follicle assembles these components into the three-dimensional structure of proteins. And it is that three-dimensional structure that then determines if an individual's hair will be curly or straight. The proteins, which, as I said, are just chains of amino acids, can be coiled in various ways. So once again, just, you know, imagine a, a string of pearls. Well, 
keratin takes the shape of a helix. And uh, the helix is, is held in place. That is, the, the position of the amino acids in the helix are, are maintained in that position by what we call hydrogen bonds. And those are weak attractive, attractive forces between oxygen and hydrogen atoms in adjacent coils of this strand of DNA. Now, to complicate matters, the coiled keratin helices are twisted into different shapes. And this is a result of what we call disulfide bridges. The uh, protein molecules contain amino acids called cysteine in certain positions. Cysteine is a sulfur-containing amino acids. So that cysteine molecules that are part of the protein chain can bind to each other. And these form crosslinks. And one, once again, imagine a coiled uh, string of pearls with some of the pearls, not adjacent ones, being tied together, being glued together. So uh, it is that three-dimensional structure that determines the, the, the shape of, of the hair. So to change this shape, the various bonds responsible for the keratin structure have to be disrupted. When the bonds are broken, the chain can then move more freely in response to stresses. What stresses? Well, like when you comb the hair or when you put it on curlers. If at that point, the bonds responsible for maintaining the structure of keratin can be reformed, the keratin, and hence the fair hair, will have been permanently reshaped. Uh, of course, any new hair that goes out is, is not going to be affected. <clears throat> Hydrogen bonds are easily broken just by exposure to water. That is why wet hair can be readily shaped. Heat, such as with a hair iron, will cause the water to evaporate and allow the hydrogen bonds to reform, keeping the hair in its new shape, at least until moisture intervenes. But to have the shape of the hair altered permanently, the sulfur-sulfur bonds have to be broken, and then they have to be reformed after the keratin molecule has taken out on its new configuration. The chemical that has traditionally been used to break these bonds is the rather unpleasant-smelling thioglycolic acid. Oh, think of sort of a rotten egg scent. Linking of the sulfur atoms in the new position is brought about with hydrogen peroxide. So getting a permanent is a two-stage process. First, the hair is treated with thioglycolic acid. Then you either comb it straight or you put it on curlers. And then you add a second chemical, that's hydrogen peroxide, that then reforms the sulfur-sulfur bonds in their new position. In the hands of experts, results are generally good. But control of bond breakage and bond formation is, is not easy. And timing is critical. Too long exposure to the chemicals can damage hair. Too short can yield unsatisfactory results. Most people who try to do a permanent at home on themselves don't end up too happy with the results. But hairdressers, of course, who do this all the time, uh, know how long to leave the chemicals on. Very often they can just feel the hair. You'll see them rubbing their thumb and their forefinger across a strand of hair that tells them how porous the hair is and how long the chemical should be left on. There's another method of straightening or at least defrizzing hair, and that relies on a different kind of chemistry. It is often referred to as Brazilian blowout, and it involves adding a solution of keratin to the hair along with a binding agent to link it to the hair's own keratin. 
So keratin is a protein, but it can be put into solution. So you are adding some extra keratin from outside the body onto onto the hair, and then you want to bind this to the already existing keratin, and that will then add weight to each hair fiber and reduce the, the frizziness. Heat is applied, uh, usually as a flat iron, to straighten the hair while the applied keratin diffuses into the hair. And then it will cross-link with the keratin that is already in there. The problem is that the binding agent is usually formaldehyde, which is a toxic compound and a known carcinogen. And indeed, a recent study has shown an increase in breast cancer, particularly in black women, since Brazilian blowout uh, was introduced. No such increase was seen with thioglycolic acid-based straighteners before the introduction of this Brazilian blowout. And because uh, it is very popular uh, among uh, African Americans, because of the frizzy hair, uh, they use more of this stuff. And uh, as I said, now seeing an increase in breast cancer risk that has been attributed to the formaldehyde that is found in the Brazilian uh, blowout. There are some versions of the blowout now that advertise no formaldehyde, although it is um, hard to know whether or not uh, that is correct. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Let's check traffic and we'll be right back. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I had posed a question about what momentous achievement of the millennium involved the chemical reaction between nitrogen tetroxide and monomethyl hydrazine. Let's see if we can get an answer to that. Hi, welcome to the show. George? Hello, Dr. Joe. I believe it's the two chemicals that were used to control the throttle engine on the Lunar Lander Eagle. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, do you know why those two chemicals were used? Uh, it's a hypergolic reaction. It needs no ignition. Very good. Very good. How do you know this? Uh, well, first of all, I used to be a student of yours about 20 years ago, <laughs> number one. And uh, number two, I, I, I do know quite a bit about, I enjoyed reading about the space history. Yeah, well... Bit. Uh, obviously, when you're on the moon and you press a button, the what you don't want to hear is brr, 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 right? <laughs> exactly. That, that's a deaf sentence. Yeah. So that's why they chose yeah. this uh, particular combination of, of uh, fuel and oxidizer, because all you have to do is, is uh, combine them, and then they will uh, they will ignite. So, yeah, that's the right answer. Let me let me just talk a little bit more about this. Uh, uh, the launch of the lunar lander from the surface of the moon, of course, was very challenging, but it was one of mankind's greatest achievements. You know, I mean, the astronauts had landed on the moon and uh, they were to return safely to the Earth. But of course, that meant that they had to take off properly from the moon. Uh, in one sense, launching a rocket from the moon is easier than launching one from uh, the Earth because the moon, of course, has only about one sixth the gravitational pull of the Earth. Uh, furthermore, since there's no air on the moon, there's no concern about air friction looking, uh, you know, slowing down the vehicle. That's why the lunar lander did not have to be uh, aerodynamically sleek. And uh, when you take a look at that lunar lander, it, it looked like a large bug, right? It did not look like uh, what uh, science fiction writers had supposed that it would look like. I mean, it didn't look like a rocket at all. In fact, you know, it, it uh, didn't need to look like a rocket because there's no air on the moon, so you have to you don't have to worry about any kind of air uh, resistance. Uh, 
So the launch from the moon required a fuel and oxidizer system that was as foolproof as possible. Rescue, of course, would not have been possible. So a system had to be chosen that would ignite with virtually no chance of failure. And that's why the engineers chose monometal hydrazine as the fuel, nitrogen tetroxide as the agent that would provide the oxygen needed for combustion. And as mentioned, this mixture is referred to as hypergolic, meaning that just a combination of the reagents result in ignition. There's no need to initiate the reaction by any other system. No sparks are, are, are needed. And, of course, the engineers were right. The launch from the moon worked flawlessly on uh, six separate occasions. But what an achievement uh, uh, that was. I mean, the whole space program was just a, a remarkable um, achievement. And uh, if you're interested in it, there are so many good books to, to read about that. I'm just listening to, to one by uh, Gene Kranz. Gene Kranz was um, one of the head honchos in the control room for the uh, Mercury, uh, Gemini, and the Apollo missions. And um, he talks about all of the problems encountered, and there were a lot of problems encountered, uh, many, many more than, than people know. The first few flights, uh, Alan Shepard's flight, Gus Grissom's flight, and John Glenn's flight, were not as flawless as, you know, as the press kind of made it out to be. And uh, there were a lot of chances that were being taken in the early days of the space program because of the race with the Russians. Uh, but uh, there are numerous books, uh, of course, uh, uh, detailing uh, all of this. Uh, Alan Shepard, uh, his, his flight was supposed to be only about 16 minutes uh, because it was just straight up for what about 160 miles and then falling back down into the ocean, spending oh, four or five minutes uh, in weightless uh, environment. But because... Uh, the flight was only supposed to be, you know, about 16 minutes. Uh, nobody had, of course, thought about uh, him having to answer nature's call. And because there was a long hold, uh, they were encountering some problems. And he had been already placed in the capsule, and he had been in there for hours, and nature did call. And there was a, a lot of discussion in the control a room about what to do, and eventually they allowed him to uh, urinate into the spacesuit. So here's a little aspect of, of uh, the first uh, manned U.S. flight that most people don't know, that uh, Alan Shepard was lying there in a little pool of urine at, uh, on his back because, of course, he was uh, lying on a couch facing up uh, at at launch. Anyway, there are some you know fascinating uh, stories about the... Uh, about the space uh, program. Okay, uh, let me just uh, go to the lines and uh, uh, let's see if, what John is all about. Hi, John. Yeah, I met some guy on hiking trails in the Adirondacks many years ago. It was about 40 or 45 years ago. And he claimed to be have been a gas physicist who had been woken up early one morning because those engines that you were talking about had malfunctioned and wouldn't wouldn't uh, ignite. What, on and the I moon? Would, on the moon. Oh. And I was just wondering what kind of a tall tale this probably was. That's to total nonsense. Okay. Total nonsense. They they ignited exactly as they uh, should ignite. There was no problem at all in uh, uh, 
coming back from the moon. I mean, of course, there were many other problems encountered in the space program. Uh, John Glenn's uh, flight, is, uh, which was uh, supposed to be seven orbits, he was the third American to go into space. That had to be curtailed because it seemed that the heat shield was coming off. Then, of course, there was the almost disastrous Apollo 13 uh, because of an oxygen tank explosion. Uh, but uh, there never was any problem in uh, taking off from the moon. Okay, so, thank you. Yeah, he was feeding you a very tall tale. Okay, uh, let me go to Liz. Hi, Liz. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Uh, you were speaking about uh, dyes for the hair and uh, permanence. Yeah. A lot of women uh, have permanence uh, to have between three to six months every year. I was wondering, do you know anything about toxicity to the scalp? Well, uh, it's not as much toxicity to the scalp uh, as damage to the hair. Well, no, hair is like nails. It's dead, dead. They don't have any nerves and they don't no, have... No, but, but that but, doesn't mean it can't be damaged. It can be texturally damaged. No, but I'm worried about the scalp. Well, I, the scalp, no, uh, aside from uh, possible reactions to thioglycolic acid, which is uh, an uh, allergenic reaction, that can happen. Uh, it really is a pretty safe process. Now, that is not the same as, you know, the one I, I talked about, which is the uh, Brazilian blowout. The Brazilian blowout uses formaldehyde. That's okay. a that's a real problem. But yeah. when you just use the ordinary permanent, as they do in in uh, you know hair salons, that's right. Uh, there, there's no toxicity problem there, aside from uh, a allergic reaction, which is always possible. Yeah, it, it burns. Sometimes it burns the scalp. So I well, it can. It, it yes, it can be an irritant. Uh, so you you know yeah. it's very important to know how long to leave it on. Yeah, because it can damage the follicles. So that's, that's why you know about. it's it's better to let an expert do that. Do that. Okay. okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's no procedure, whether you're talking about cosmetic procedure or medical procedure, that doesn't have some possible downside. Yes, right. So it's always a question of you know weighing the benefits against the risks. All right. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thank okay. you. Okay. Let me go to Peter. Hi, Peter. Hello. Hi. Hi, Doctor Joe. What's up, Happy Peter? New Year. Thank you, you too. Uh, there's been recent talk about, uh, in the city of Montreal, uh, with the pipes, the lead pipes, and I wanted to know, all these Brita filters that they sell, do they remove the lead? Uh, no, not, the not, not the ordinary Brita filter, but Brita also makes a filter that does remove lead, but it's not the one that normally comes with the jug. Okay, no. so, but but you can go uh, on Amazon, and you can just put in Brita LED filter, and you'll see it. It looks the same, and it fits the jug, but it's a different filter. Okay, and what happens when like you're all, you're exposed to lead a lot for like for many years? Is there a danger to your health? Or Absolutely, what? lead is one of the uh, most toxic metals that there is. It does tend to build up in the body. The most critical exposure is early on in life, in embryo and infants, uh, that can uh, impair IQ. It can have all kinds of neurological effects. Uh, in adulthood, it's somewhat less uh, dangerous, but nevertheless, you want to stay as far from lead in the uh, food supply and the water supply as, as you can. So uh, if there's any question, uh, using one of those lead filters is a good idea. Okay, thank okay. you very much. All right. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You've probably heard of the voodoo lily, which is an interesting plant, and uh, it eats insects. 
The question is, how does it attract the insects that it eats? So how does the voodoo lily attract insects? If you know the answer to that, give us a call at 514-790-0800, 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. Okay, let me just get back to the lines. There are some people waiting. Angela. Angela? Angela? Yes. Yes. Uh, Thank you, uh, doctor, for taking my call. I want to know what kind of pipes, water pipes, are the safest for your house? Well, the pipes that are now used are either uh, made of copper, uh, which is safe enough, or made of plastic. Uh, The ones that are problematic are the lead pipes, but the lead pipes are not installed anymore. They're still found in some uh, older houses, but uh, the modern pipes are not a problem. But uh, copper is not supposed to be safe. Copper is a is excellent material for piping. Yeah. It's not dangerous for your health. No, it's not. In oh, fact, okay. In, in Thank fact, you, doctor. In fact, the, the body needs the, the body I... needs some copper. Copper is an essential nutrient. Okay. All right. Thank you. Let me go to Maureen. 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 Oh yes. Uh, good afternoon, Doctor Joe. Um, I just have a question. Uh, I've read a lot about it, and I'm just wondering. If there's any truth to it, it's apple cider vinegar. The only truth to it is that it exists. Pardon me? The only truth about apple cider vinegar is that it exists. Okay. There's, in terms of all the health effects, uh, there's nothing that, that is, is compelling in the published uh, scientific literature. And I can oh. tell you that there's no food out there, whether it's a fruit, whether it's a berry, whether it's a seed, that doesn't have some blogger telling you that it is the magical answer to all of health problems, uh, ranging from uh, pepper to, to uh, uh, dried cherries to nuts. Everyone has its proponents, and uh, all we need to do is to take a look at the scientific literature, see if anything backs it up, and uh, I can't find anything about apple cider vinegar. I think it's pretty good if you want to put it on your french fries, but that's about it. Okay. Okay? Well, thank you for clarifying that. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Let me go to Anna. Anna. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe, and I am... I I might have an answer to the voodoo lily. Okay. Is it smell? Smell of the rotten meat? Exactly. That's okay. exactly right. Very good. Very good. Okay. Uh, it uh, The voodoo lily relies on carrion beetles uh, for pollination. And as the name suggests, uh, these beetles normally feast on dead animals. So uh, how does the lily entice them? By making the smell of rotting flesh. And the plant releases two compounds, putrescine and cadaverine. And uh, these are the same compounds that are found in rotting flesh. And they're vaporized as the uh, plant blooms and uh, warms up in, in the sunshine. Uh, it delivers this signal uh, to the uh, beetles to come a-running. And, uh, of course, they then get trapped and, uh, and get eaten by the, by the plant. So it's very interesting about uh, you know how these plants are able to synthesize compounds that mimic the stench of uh, flesh, of decaying flesh. 
Okay, so we had the answer for uh, for that one, and let's see uh, who else is uh, is on the line. Hi, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, it's Morgan. Hi, Morgan. Uh, question, I heard someone talk about copper water lines, so I'm just curious. I was about to change mine, and I'm wondering if he knows anything about it. I've heard about PEX line leaching um, chemicals, so I just... I want to know if I can do it in text, which is a lot easier than copper. What 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 line? The water lines in a house. Yeah, yeah. But what what are you changing it to? Well, I'm I have copper now, but they're at the time that I need to change them. So I'm wondering if I should go to copper, which is a lot of soldering, versus PEX, which I heard le- leaches. So I want to know if it leaches. Well, I don't know anything wrong about copper pipes. I mean, this is you know that's what plumbers favor. Uh, and I mean, obviously, as you say, it's more work involved to to do it. Uh, but the uh, many of the pipes that are used today are plastic, of course, uh, PVC. And uh, yes, they will leach out some components, but but they're generally in the parts per trillion range, you know, which is a very very small amount. And copper, of course, also, also leaches some uh, copper, and. Uh, uh, although copper is, as, as I mentioned earlier, it's an essential uh, nutrient, uh, if you run a lot of hot water through copper pipes, you can get too much copper. So, uh, but uh, in, in terms of uh, corrosion, uh, copper is, is really very resistant, and also you get less buildup of scale on the uh, copper pipes. So, but again, you know, I mean, this is this is a, a job for a plumber, and <laughs> he'll tell you exactly which one to use. Okay. All right, Thank you very much for the help. Okay. Thanks very Have much. Have a good day. Okay. Uh, bye. Bye. So, the, I mean, the lead pipe story is, is of course, uh, uh, it's a meaningful story. Uh, you don't want lead pipes if you can avoid it, and the city is going to replace the lead pipes, but uh, some of the charge, of course, will go to the uh, uh, people who own the house. Okay. Uh, let's see who else is on, on the line. Is uh, Terry. Terry? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Doctor. What can we do for you? Is this Dr. Schwartz? Yes. Um, question, doctor. Um, is it sometimes, um, do, should we expose ourselves to bacteria and things like that to strengthen our immune well, I don't, system? Well, I don't think you should purposefully expose yourself. Uh, but I think that there is a lot of evidence that uh, children who are exposed to uh, bacteria are less likely to become ill later in life because they develop resistance to a lot of bacteria. Mm-hmm. This is why you know kids who who spend a, a lot of time in daycares, for example, where they are exposed early on. Uh, supposedly have a reduced incidence of disease but uh, again you know the the uh, evidence for all of these things is is pretty soft but uh, okay. there's there's a lot of talk about the so-called hygiene hypothesis you know that we're being too clean we're not exposing ourselves to enough uh, uh, microbes and therefore immune system is suffering but there's more talk than science there so i, I wouldn't i wouldn't go exposing myself on purpose not exposing to doctor not exposing but uh, for the fact like i see my parents who are there in their 80s now um the way they grew up in the old country um, they didn't have what we have today, and I think it, it 
I don't know if it turned out good or, or yeah, no, what. There, but there, there is an argument to be made for for you know not being too clean early on in in life. We don't need to disinfect everything. Uh, we don't need to to keep our kids, uh, you know. Um, free of all kinds of, of, of microbes because it's important for the immune system to learn how to deal with those microbes. And, right. you know, there's evidence that uh, uh, when you are too clean, then the immune system starts to target uh, uh, stuff that aren't really dangerous. And the, this is what gives rise to so-called autoimmune diseases when the immune system kind of turns on, on itself. Uh, this is also the reason that there's so much talk these days of probiotics, of uh, ingesting bacteria, the so-called good bacteria, that will then squeeze the disease-causing bacteria out of the gut. And right. these are all you know, interesting arguments, but again, the, the, the science is not nearly as uh, convincing as newspaper accounts make it out to be. Okay. Thank you, Short, and have a great new year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to, uh, to you as well. Uh, tomorrow uh, is my day for uh, the talk at the Eleanor London Public Library, 2 o'clock. Everyone is, of course, invited. It's a totally free event. And tomorrow we're going to talk about the importance of communicating science and how to best do it. And uh, it's, of course, an area that I deal with all the time. And uh, we have a lot of challenges in trying to communicate science in the best possible way. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We're going to take our last break and be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I have a couple of text messages here about apple cider vinegar. Uh, Somebody claims that taking a tablespoon of it in the morning and there are no insect bites during the day. I'd be very skeptical about that. Uh, I believe it. If you don't go outside, there'll be no insect bites. But uh, uh, I'd like to see a study on that. There's no way I I can rationalize uh, apple cider vinegar internally than warding off insects. Someone else says, I heard apple cider vinegar can topically dissolve moles. I've seen videos about it. Do not play around with that. If you have a mole that you're concerned about, go and have a dermatologist look at it. Do not play around with apple cider vinegar. Uh, some moles, of course, uh, can be a problem because they they can be cancerous. Uh, but it's only a dermatologist or another doctor who can tell you that. Do not try to dissolve some mole on your body with apple cider vinegar. Okay, let's go to Mark. Hi, Mark. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Uh, I have a question for you. If a patient, uh, a person goes to the hospital in their nuclear medicine department to have what they call a nuclear stress test, they, inocul- uh, they inject n- radioactive material both in the morning and the afternoon. Yeah. How dangerous is this? It's not dangerous. It's not. The, this has been well studied, and the isotopes that are used there are very short-lived, and it's not a problem. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, let's go to Gabor, is it? Gabor? Yes. That's a good, good Hungarian name. Yes, indeed. How are you, doctor? <laughs> okay. Uh, my question is this. I was watching the French channel. Uh, it's called Epi3 on CBC. Mm-hmm. They are talking about citrus fruits being soaked in limazalil water mix. And limazalil apparently is a known carcinogenic agent. What, what is the chemical? 
It's called Limazalil. And the name of the uh, program is called Epi3. It's a fairly recent... Uh, well, listen, I mean, all pesticides are toxic. That's why pesticides are used, right? Right. <laughs> That's, there's, they're toxic to uh, insects. And uh, because um, humans, of course, are very large insects, some more so than others, uh, it is conceivable that there could be a problem. But right. these things are very well studied, and the doses that are used are, are you know, evaluated in numerous studies. So just because a chemical is there doesn't mean that it is doing harm uh, when the evidence comes from large doses in test animals. Right. So, you know, uh, uh, it certainly is possible that there are some farmers out there who don't take appropriate care, you know, and who don't use these things uh, properly. But that's rare. Uh, but pesticides are potentially dangerous. However, they also increase our food supply. You would not have your blueberries and your raspberries and your strawberries in the middle of winter uh, if it weren't for the use of these chemicals. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Debbie. Debbie. Yeah. Yes. I, I want to ask a question. That's why yes. I'm here. Okay. Over the years, since I was a small child, we've always used uh, Johnson's baby powder. Right. Now, all of a sudden, they're being sued for causing cancer. Yes. Well, the uh, allegation is that the baby powder at one time was contaminated with bits of asbestos and that this was responsible for causing ovarian cancer. However... Uh, in spite of all of those lawsuits and Johnson & Johnson having paid out millions, just this past week, the most influential study came out. Uh, this looked at thousands and thousands of women who had used uh, baby powder, and they conclude that there's no link between it and ovarian cancer. So we'll we'll see where this goes. Uh, I think it's not going to stop the ambulance chasing lawyers. Uh, but right now, the evidence uh, does not corroborate the link between uh, ovarian cancer and the baby powder. Yeah, that's what I thought. It, it seems kind of stupid. Well, no, I wouldn't say stupid. I mean, it's not inconceivable, uh, you know, because asbestos is a, a carcinogen and it's conceivable that it could enter uh, uh, through the vagina. But conceivable is not the same thing as having evidence. And now the most recent evidence uh, suggests that there is no link. But we'll see, oh, okay. we'll see where all of those uh, lawsuits uh, end up. Oh, that would be great. Okay. Because personally, I love it. <laughs> okay. I mean, what can I say? Yeah. It's wonderful. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Joe. Okay, bye. Uh, okay, we go to Jean-Pierre. Uh, Dr. Joe, Hi. I heard on the radio that there's a car that's named the e-tron. E-tron? I don't e know. E-T, e I heard that. Uh, I tell you because in French, e-tron means third, T-U-R-D. <laughs> No, I never heard of that car. Uh, uh, I mean, just by the name, it uh, suggests that it, it's some it kind of do e much re research. E electric car. They should have done more marketing research because yeah, it's a it's a, a, a vul, vul, vulgar word. I mean, yeah. How, how do they spell it? I think I don't know. I think there's a hyphen between the e and the tron. Oh, yeah, yeah, that probably makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But uh, if it's just one word, it's a, it, it's a third T U R D. Yeah. Okay. Well. You know the information now. Yeah, thank you for bringing us that 
that information, the world will be better off for it. Okay, thank you. One last one, Tony. Tony. Oh, Dr. Joe. Yeah. I'm so pleased to speak with you. I've been listening to you for many, many years. Uh, just wanted to mention about, uh, because of uh, this topic of copper mm-hmm. and lead, uh, yeah. lead pipes comes up uh, yeah. many times. Yeah. But there's one thing that's important. If anyone is, uh, because when uh, they first started using copper, they used uh, lead to solder. Yes. And <clears throat> now there are lead-free solders available, but uh, uh, that that is always around, and maybe a lot of joints someplace. Yes, and, and uh, it's it's not clear that everyone is abiding by the lead-free solder laws. That's right. You know, so because I, as I know I've I've had plumbers tell me that the the older lead-based uh, solders yeah. were better and easier to use. Oh right. yes, yes they are. Yeah. <laughs> I know I've done it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, uh, but I mean, they're not supposed to use lead solder. No, but the uh, suggestion is, uh, you know, no matter where you are, uh, uh, you can always, like in the morning, uh, flush your toilets and let the water run for two or three minutes. That helps. That helps. So, that that helps. Yeah. But still, you know, if you have lead pipes and you have small children or or the chance of being pregnant, uh, then I, I think you have to think about uh, either using a, a proper filter or replacing oh, the pipes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, okay. thank you very much. All right, thank you. So once again, the hour has uh, flown by. Uh, let me just remind our Montreal listeners that uh, tomorrow, 2 o'clock, uh, Eleanor London Public Library, and I'll be talking about the importance of science communication and how we may uh, be able to improve it because there's a lot of miscommunication out there. There are a lot of videos, a lot of movies uh, that have slanted views about uh, about science. Well, that's it. Uh, we are smack out of time. But, of course, we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>